We're taking a short break from Genesis in honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I look forward to today, and then Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday. Turn with me to Matthew 21, the text that I'll be working off of today. But I need to tell you that we're going to be drinking from a fire hose again. I'm sorry, but there's just so much. I I wish you people were taliabo, because I could just go on until I was tired. And (laughs) I mean, you would benefit from it, but I I just don't think we're ready for that yet. Okay, three parts to the sermon today. Just keep in mind, I know I've got an outline, and this goes along with that outline, but Jesus' possession, his procession, into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry. That's the first part I'm going to talk about. And a little bit of background, what led up to that and and how it flows. And then secondly, the amazing timing of the king's entry into Jerusalem. That's what I gave you that chart for. If you didn't get one, I think there might still be some out there. Maybe the ushers can hand you one. But uh, I'll be putting it up on the screen. I just didn't know how large it would be, and it's very, very hard to follow along. But if you have it in your hand, you'll be able to follow along. And then number three how Jesus was received. Okay, so that, that, keep that in mind as we go through uh, the sermon today. In Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, quote, say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And that's where we get Palm Sunday from. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look into these things today, that our hearts would be moved. Father, it's so hard. We're so distant from the event, and our lives are just so filled with distractions and busyness, and the cares of the world, Lord. And Father, we would just pray that somehow you'd put a bubble over us right now, at <laughs> beacon of hope, and those that are listening online, and that we might be able to just quiet ourselves and try to transport ourselves back to this momentous day when you entered Jerusalem as Israel's king. Father, we thank you for your word that it clarifies things for us that we would have no way of knowing without it. The veracity of your word is a wonderful truth, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just want to talk a little bit about the lead-up to Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry of the king into Jerusalem didn't come without any type of announcement or preparation. In the uh, time leading up to this day, there were many things that Jesus taught his disciples and indications that something big was brewing. The Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not the Gospel of John, they give interesting details that aren't contained in the Gospel of John, those three. Jesus, having passed through Bethany, the town of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead, Jesus, early in the morning, 
set out for Jerusalem together with a throng from Bethany. Now, you have to understand this because later on we'll read that he was walking with a great crowd that was following him, and then he goes into a great crowd that were lying in the streets of Jerusalem. So there was a throng with him. And as he neared the city, he sent two of his disciples ahead to Bethphage to a place known only to him where they would find a young donkey. They were supposed to untie it and bring it back to Jesus. And he says, if anybody questions what you're doing, just say the Lord has need of it. And that's exactly what they did. It shows us that everything was pre-planned. This whole thing was of God. He knew way ahead and in advance that this was what needed to be done, and his disciples obeyed him. The two obeyed him immediately and went and did what he asked, and the people that had the donkey let it go. Now, how different this is from when we have opportunities to serve the Lord. You you know when you feel that quiet tap on the shoulder to speak up or to say something, or maybe it's in the morning to read your Bible or to take some time out and just pray, and we kind of rush past. Would God, we could respond as these two disciples. We would be blessed like they were blessed. Can you imagine? (laughs) I mean, they go into Bethphage, and they find this donkey right where Jesus told them to find it, and then the guy comes out, and they say, the Lord has need of it. And they just, I mean, have you ever been used by God? Has he ever used you to talk to somebody about him and they responded in a positive way? Maybe they didn't believe at that time. But that, that feeling, that emotion that you have when you obey God and you're blessed by it is amazing. And that's what those two experienced You know, it's very interesting that Jesus, as the Son of Man, was exemplified in a psalm, and this is what the psalm said. You have made him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and even that little donkey, unbroken, allowed coats to be thrown over its back, and then Jesus to sit on it without any fuss or muss. He he was its creator. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so began the journey from Bethany over the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and into the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' procession into Jerusalem was so humble a picture that it would have caused derisive laughter from the regal Romans had they witnessed it. But this was a Jewish thing. It was a Jewish holiday. King Jesus didn't approach the city on a glistening white war horse or as a conquering king might enter a city. His grand entrance was not the triumphal procession of one attempting to stir up political enthusiasm or commemorate some marvelous victory. The crowds that cheered him as he rode forward were not blooded, magnificent warriors. They were common people, like you and like me. And they were the ones crying out honor and praise to God as Jesus rode past. What a humble, simple scene this is. And how far from the accolades shown toward great dignitaries. Reminds me of the story I once heard of a returning missionary couple from China. This was way back in the day of the China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor's mission. And they were returning uh, after years on the field, and there was some celebrity on board, and there were just crowds of people and crowds of people applauding this celebrity. And this poor couple, probably looking pretty shabby, get off the boat and there was nobody there. That's not the way it will be in heaven. I want you to look this morning on this scene through the eyes of Jesus Christ as he makes his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, winding up the main road with the Mount of Olives rising on his right, 
until at its height the road levels out on a smooth plateau and the great city appears with the morning sun intensifying the white marble of the temple in almost blinding brightness. Alfred Edersheim, uh, author of Jesus, Messiah, excellent book, wrote it this way, quote, The road descends and the glimpse of the city is again withdrawn behind the intervening rise of Olivet. A few moments and the path mounts again and it climbs a rugged ascent. It reaches a ledge of smooth rock and in an instant the whole city bursts into view like a ghost from the earth before the traveler standing on the ledge and before their eyes. The temple tower would rise, the magnificent city with its background of gardens and suburbs on the western plateau behind it. Immediately before it was the Valley of Kidron, where we have seen the greatest depth as it joins the Valley of Hinnom and gives the full effect to the great peculiarity of Jerusalem seen as only on the eastern side. Its situation as a city rising out of a deep abyss, it is hardly possible to doubt that it was at this rise and the turn in the road, this rocky ledge was not the exact point where the multitude paused again and Jesus, when he beheld the city, wept over it. Not with still sobs at, like at Lazarus' tomb, but with loud and deep lamentation. Turn to Luke chapter 19 with me. Luke 19, and I want you to look at verse 41. Luke 19, 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This took place in 70 AD. But they had rejected Jesus over 30 years prior to that. You see, as you're looking across that valley of Hinnom, Jesus saw as if in a moment the beautiful white marble towers and the golden roofs pulled down and ground into dust and it drew out of him a sobbing prophecy against the beauty which he saw only four decades. It would become a reality in 70 AD. The city was put under siege by Titus for months. Her inhabitants suffered starvation and the slaughter of tens of thousands of her men, women, and children. And Titus systematically decimated the great city for obstinate rebellion, destroying the temple. That's rebellion, not against Christ, but against Rome. Destroying the temple and the great structures of the city and history telling us of the fulfillment of Jesus' prophetic words that not one stone would be left upon another. And why would she suffer? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. When he came... They didn't receive him. He came to his own. They received him not. Messiah had come, and they had rejected him. Now, after leaving the emotionally packed moments on the vista overlooking the city, the procession made its way down the main road, trailing the mountainside into the valley that lay before Jerusalem. And due to the Passover feast, now just six days away, the village All the villages were packed with overflowing with visitors and pilgrims coming to Jerusalem and the temple for the feast. And so much of the roads were lined with little lean-tos where pilgrims who could not find lodging in villages or with relatives would make their camp. Little lean-tos. And one commentator described a situation of Jerusalem at this time. The time was during the Passover feast in Jerusalem with a typical population of about 30,000 people would swell with worshipers from all over Eastern Mediterranean world. Ancient reports state that the population of the city would range from a half a million to 12 million people. 
Can you imagine that? And one historian, Josephus, recorded that there were approximately 256,000 lambs that were sacrificed during Passover. 256,000 lambs. And using a low estimate of 10 persons to each lamb, that would be a calculation to little short of 2,700,000 people. And the city itself could not hold them. And so they'd stay in the surrounding villages and many set up tents along the road leading to Jerusalem and the surrounding area around the city. And that's what Jesus marched into, riding that donkey. Now I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. This is amazing prophecy that pinpoints the time of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I do mean pinpoints. As previously mentioned, every detail was pre-planned and the Jews should have been able to understand what was taking place, to know the time of their visitation, but they didn't. How? Because of this prophecy in Daniel 9. That's why they should have known when Jesus would enter Jerusalem. It's a staggering promise and prophecy. You know, the prophecies that are fulfilled in the Bible, many of them uh, declaring Jesus' first uh, advent, completely fulfilled with prophecies hundreds of years, made hundreds of years before, that is proof that this is the word of God. And modern higher criticism has tried to take the book of Isaiah and the book of Deuteronomy and Genesis, and and just rip it apart so that there's no prophecy. These things took place, these writings took place afterwards, and just a bunch of poppycock, I don't know what else to use. It's just mishmashed by these arrogant scholars, all to take away from the fact that the Bible can be trusted. And if you don't get anything from today's sermon, please get that. You can trust this book, every word of it. You see, in Daniel was still in captivity, in Babylonian captivity, towards the end of the 70 years of captivity. He was reading the scriptures in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, and in 29, 10, and 11. And you can mark those down. I know the guys, everybody in Sojourners has listened to this already and heard about this. But Daniel understood that the time of captivity was at its close because he believed it was the word of God and it was prophesied to be so. And he, he tabulated the years and he said, dude, we're there. But God wasn't moving. It didn't seem like anything was going where they were going to be released from their captivity. So he sends up this prayer. And he prayed diligently. You see that in Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19. I'm not going to go there. But he prays, and then God sent an angel to answer to, Dan, uh, to give Daniel the answer to his prayer. Now, I want you to look specifically at Daniel 9, verse 24 through 27. This is part of the answer. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There is the tip-off. There is the tip-off. That is the dating of when Jesus would reveal himself as the king of Israel, to Israel. And I'm going to show you in a a moment, I gave you, you had to pass out a a little diagram. The reason I did that is so if it's too far for you to see, you can take this home and check it out, check the dates out if you will. But it tells us the actual date that Jesus is going to show himself as Messiah. It will be built again, Israel, with a plaza and moat and even in times of distress. Then... After 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 
And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end that there will be war, desolations and, uh, are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Very, very, very important. Those verses, God lays out the future for Israel from the time of Daniel and the restoration and the rebuilding of Jerusalem till the end of the age when Messiah would return and set up his kingdom on earth. In 924, there are six specifics that would take place during that time frame. The first three have taken place. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make an atonement for iniquity. That has been taken place at Calvary. But then there is to bring in everlasting righteousness, which is still future, to seal up vision and prophecy, still future, and to anoint the most holy place, still future. Now, within that time frame designated in God's answer to Daniel's prayer, all the above six things will take place in that whole time frame. And it's a time frame that extends all the way to the second coming of Christ to set up his kingdom on earth. Daniel 9.25 begins to give details about the time frame using a system of prophetic weeks or units of seven. So there are to be 70 units of seven years. A prophetic week is seven years long, okay? So you take 70 units of seven years, and that comes to a total of 490 years. That's that whole time frame where all this is going to take place, 490 years. But then you need to divide those 490 years into three different sections, okay? Bear with me. Bear with me. And it's all taped so you can go back and look it out. The first unit will be seven years. That's seven times seven, which is 49 years, right? Or, yeah, seven years, okay. So during which the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem would take place. Now, you've got to realize this is being given to Daniel. He's still in captivity and... The angel is explaining to him what's going to happen. So there's 49 years. They're going to go back to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the walls. They're going to be rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city. The second period is said to be 62 weeks. So that's 62 times 7. That's an addition of 434 years. So 434 plus 49, that's 483 years that Messiah would then come and manifest himself to Israel. But then he, he's cut off. Then he's cut off. How is he cut off? Well, the crucifixion. He dies. And so the third period, time period, is the remaining seven years, or what's referred to as Daniel's 70th week. Now, you're looking at somebody that got saved through Bible prophecy, and so I love Bible prophecy. This church is pre-trib and pre-millennial in its viewpoint, unashamedly. And part of the reason is what I'm sharing with you this morning. Most people are pan-millennials, okay? They think that it's all going to pan out. And they just don't want to take the time to study the Scripture. Well, thank God Daniel took the time to look back at Jeremiah and tabulated the times and the seasons. And we should be as diligent as well. And so I'm presenting this to you. Now, after this second period, this time of the 483 years, but before the third period begins, Messiah is cut off. He dies. Now, we know he rose again. But at his death, that stopped the time clock and left one week of seven years left. That's Daniel's 70th year. We refer to it as the time of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation. 
So Messiah would be cut off. That's done. The rebuilt city of Jerusalem will be destroyed again. That took place in 70 A.D. Daniel 9.27 starts things up again with a little conjunction and, which signifies that this someone will make a firm covenant with the many. So that someone is Antichrist. He makes a peace covenant with the many, that's Israel, for seven years. One week. And that's the final week of seven years, or what's referred to as Daniel's 70th week. Now, it's important to note that the two things that, that take place between Messiah revealing himself, being cut off and the destruction of Jerusalem, takes place before that last seven years begins, and the person makes a seven-year covenant. Messiah being cut off refers to his crucifixion, I said, and Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, but no one has yet made a firm covenant for seven years in history. That has not taken place yet. Everything else is coming true, just literally as it's stated in Daniel, but that covenant has not been made yet. That is yet future. In the interim period, from the time of Jesus being cut off until that new uh, 70th week starts up again, and the Antichrist makes that covenant, in that interim period, in that parenthetical time frame, that's us. That's the church age. And he's taking out from among the peoples of the world a people for his name. This is an exciting time to be alive, people. So how all this relates to Palm Sunday, you know, I hope I haven't lost you. Look back at uh, Daniel 9.25. The angel told Daniel that he should know and discern the time frame based on specific decree which would be given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem after the captivity. Was such a decree ever given? Yes. In fact, there were four decrees right around this time frame. One was given by Cyrus to rebuild the temple only. But the prophecy said it was to rebuild the city, the entire city, not just the temple. So it wasn't that decree. The second decree was given by Darius, King Darius, but that was a repeat of Cyrus's decree and only concerned the temple itself. A third decree was given by Artaxerxes to Ezra, Again, it was only the temple and the implements for worship and the leaders of worship. But there was a fourth decree by King Artaxerxes given to Nehemiah. And you can find that in Nehemiah chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. Just trust me on this. It's just too much. So I'm going to show you how this all plays out, maybe. This is not my forte, folks. Are we coming up on it? Okay, I think that's it. This is so cool. I want you to follow with. You can look at your little diagram because that's right what I'm going to be working off of. During the last days of Daniel's captivity, he received a vision from God, as I already explained to you, and the vision were 70 weeks, weeks of seven years each, and we see this in Daniel 9, one and 9, 20, and 23, okay? I think I've got that there. Yes. The entire 70-week period totals 490 years. We arrive at that number by multiplying 70 times 7 years. I think I even have something like this. We're zooming it out. All right. Do one more here. Okay. Daniel's four kingdoms, this goes right in line with Daniel's four kingdoms. 69 weeks. 69 weeks is 483 years, Daniel 9.25c. So the first 69 weeks are combined and contained within Daniel's four great Gentile kingdoms. These 69 weeks come in a total of 483 years, Daniel 9.25 says that the 70-week period will begin at the issuing of a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 
we know that in 444 B.C., Nehemiah uh, 2, 5 through 8 takes place, and King Artaxerxes tells Nehemiah to return and rebuild the city. Not Not just the walls, not just the temple, but the entire city. And it's the only... It's the only decree that says, rebuild the entire city. And we know that the 20, it was the 20th year of King's, uh, King Artaxerxes' reign, and historical data leads us to date that date at 444 B.C. This is just, this is so cool. <laughs> Seven weeks, 49 years, which the new temple would be rebuilt. So that's the temple being rebuilt after the 70-year captivity, okay? That's the first temple, okay? The first temple was uh, Solomon's temple. And then, in 396 B.C., the city of Jerusalem was rebuilt, 396 B.C. We're ticking off these 69 weeks, okay? And then, we got 62 weeks which comes to a total of 483 years in which the second temple was built. And this is the Herodian temple, okay? And that is the temple that Jesus was in existence during Jesus' day. In A.D. 33, we have Messiah coming. And he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and presented himself as Messiah to the people of Israel. They initially received him, but quickly rejected him within a week and were crying out to crucify him. It was at that date in A.D. 33 when the 69th week came to a close. He was cut off. That's 483 years. And he told them, you missed the time of your visitation. Man, that is staggering. And they went into dispersion. And even today, even though they have returned to the land, they are not there in faith yet. Okay? They are back, which is a miracle in itself. How does that work, right? After the 69 weeks were closed... Come on. He's cut off and Messiah's ascension. Okay? And then 70 AD comes in and we see these two great events. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his ascension, and then the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. These are historical facts. You can go back and check out, okay? And there's a gap between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. In this gap, the church is born, and Jesus is calling out a people for his name. Mary and I went to the mission field because in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says that there will be people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and language on the earth. And I figured America's pretty fished out. People don't want to hear the gospel. But people that have never heard before, I'm guaranteed at least one because there's representatives from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation. And that's why we went to the mission field. So the next event will kick off, and that is to take place, Daniel's fourth kingdom, the little horn, Daniel 7, 8, 19 through. Prophetic time clock resumes for fulfillment. Okay, We don't know when that takes place. It's right here. The rapture of the church first, and then the start of the seven-year tribulation. One week, seven years. That is the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Now, we're right here. And I would actually say we are like right here. About as close to that line as you can possibly get. If you don't know the Lord... You don't want to be here for that seven years. If you want to see what those seven years are like, read Revelation 6 through 19. That's what the seven years will look like, and they are horrific. And you cannot take that as symbolic. It's prophetic language, a lot of comparisons, like, as, 
And it just shares with us what life will be like when God pours his wrath out on the earth dwellers. We're seeing a little bit of that right now, folks. The earth dwellers are taking over the earth. They are not lovers of God or anything to do with God. They love the earth. They love their own bodies. And we're on the wrong side of history right now. <laughs> but we know the end, so don't, don't fret. Don't be too worried about it. Because after that period of time, oh, that seven years is divided by 1,260 days, okay, which is a half a week or three and a half years. Remember, the Antichrist makes that covenant with Israel for seven years. At the halfway point, at three and a half years, he breaks it. And he wants everybody to worship him. Places himself up as God. 666, third temple, tribulation period. Okay, so you got the second temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. The third temple is erected, which I don't know if you listen to Jan Markell or other people that watch all this stuff, but they say that um, there's, they're ready. There is a group of people ready to erect the third temple. It, this is amazing days to live in. But then after that, you have, and you can, look, you can look these verses up and you'll see everything that I'm talking about here. Then after that, you have the last period, which is referred to as the Great Tribulation, and that is when the wrath of God really descends upon the earth. That's when, when um, the earth dwellers are hiding in caves, shaking their fist at God. They know it's him. They know that he's raining down his wrath upon them, and they're still shaking their fist at God. Wow. So that great tribulation period brings us to the end of the seven years, and there's a complete destruction of Antichrist, and Jesus comes a second time to destroy him and his followers. Now, it's at the end of this period of time He comes back down. You notice here is the rapture. He doesn't come and return back to the earth. He meets the church in the air. But at his advent, he comes back to earth. And that's the second coming. And then you're ushered into the everlasting kingdom, which is, begins with the millennial kingdom of 1,000 years, where he will reign as King Jesus on the throne in Jerusalem. And there will be a restoration, partial though it be, because at the end of that 1,000 years, some of the mortals who go into the millennial kingdom raise up, their children raise up and rebel against God once again. And that's when he just wipes everything out, completely destroys the heavens and the earth and recreates them. And that's eternity future. That's what we have to look forward to. It's all good. You don't have to worry. He's got it figured out. So that's the end of the slideshow. <laughs> I, I tell you, it's just not my forte, but with that little uh, handout that I gave you, I hope you were able to follow a little bit. Take it home and read it. Now, if you really want to get down to it, uh, that, that diagram, I didn't do that. That's Tim LaHaye's diagram. Um, so kudos to Tim for doing that for us. But this is written by a man called Harold Honer, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And you'll find all the dates and all footnoted and all the historical data in this little book. It's little, but man, is it powerful. And it'll take you through everything I just said uh, with footnotes to help you understand even better. So that's why I say that I love God's word. It's clear for us to understand. Now please return to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Because I want to talk to you in closing, and I can't believe it. I think I have time. In closing, I want to talk to you about how the individuals at Jesus' time responded to this triumphal entry. There's three distinct categories of people that were present on the first Palm Sunday. 
And each group is represented here today. And only you can decide which group you belong to. So I want you to be thinking about that as we go through. The first group is devout followers of Jesus Christ. They're the ones that are singing antiphonally back and forth, and they're just like ecstatic. Messiah has revealed himself. There's no doubt in their mind. They may have even understood Daniel and received him. But it wasn't as a nation, right? These people had witnessed Jesus' miracles. Now remember that Jesus had been going for three years in his ministry, and so they knew who Jesus was. These were those who followed him from Bethany and who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, a man that had been dead four days. Past the time, the Jews believed that the spirit of the deceased person remained within the body, so it wasn't a resuscitation. He was dead, and Jesus rose, uh, raised him from the dead. So they took Jesus to be Messiah, these devout followers. And the inner thoughts of their heart would become visible with their outcries, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna means give salvation now. And only Messiah could save Israel. And long anticipated and prophesied Son of David. They knew who he was. They identified him correctly, and they were worshiping him. It was in the tradition of the Jews on high day and holy days to sing Psalm 118, 25 through 28. And the gospel writers revealed to us that all along the road into Jerusalem, this must have been taking place as pilgrims lining one side of the road sang out to the other side, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And those on the other side would answer in song, We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine on us. And then they'd be responded to, Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar to be answered again from across the road. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. He came. He promised, and he came. And then in unison, they'd all sing, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his steadfast love, Hesed, endures forever. The cries of the multitude, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and the phrase, Kingdom of our Father David, and the title given to him, the Son of David, all point to the fact that these people knew who Jesus was and that he was presenting himself as Messiah. And they received him as such, but only a blessed remnant and not the nation. It was a mixed multitude that were there. There was another group with that group, and they were the mere onlookers. Verses 10 and 11. Others in the milling mass of humanity were along for the ride. They merely followed the crowd, and it was that everyone was doing, and so they jumped on the bandwagon, and they wanted to fit in. But they did not understand the identity of Jesus. They were just traipsing along with everybody else. Not unlike a lot of people that go to church on Sunday. I mean, we've got a church in the Twin Cities here that's, that's well over 12,000, 15,000, 18,000 people. I want to tell you people, they're not all born-again believers. They're not all regenerate people. So there's a lot of folks that go to church that don't have a heart faith or a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting here today wondering what I'm talking about, I would say that you're one that hasn't entered into that personal relationship yet with God. Come talk to me. These people were excited. The climate was electric. The entire climate was festive and they were filled with anticipation and and what they didn't even know, but still really caught up in all the joy of it. Can you imagine what it must have been like for all those people on the sides of the road singing back and forth? And believe me, hey, wherever there's groups of people like that, there's all sorts of food, right? This is a great party time. It's a festival. But still... One short week later, they were the ones that were joining in with the crowd in the same way, following the crowd, saying, crucify him, crucify him. These were the religiously correct folks. They blended in, but without personal conviction. And we know this quite clear, because when asked the question in uh, 21.10, who is this? They quickly replied, this is the prophet, Jesus. 
not. <laughs> they were wrong. Not the Lord, not the King of Israel, not the Son of David, the prophet Jesus. They lied with their voices following the chants and the songs that they played at worship. And, and Jesus warned the people of such a state earlier in his ministry with the words, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is a frightful, frightful verse. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, Matthew seven twenty one. How tragic to be so close to actually witness the triumphal entry and not have a clue and miss it. The third group of people are the religious hypocrites. And these moralists, these blind leaders of the blind, were the very men responsible to lead the nation of Israel. Instead, filled with jealous rage and, and the popularity of Jesus, which they hated, they saw their grip over the people evaporating and being transferred to his, this prophet Jesus. And these men were familiar in the Bible, with the Bible. They knew it backwards and forwards. Many of them were Sadducees and scribes. And they understood the history of Israel. They gathered the people of God every week, but their hearts were far from God. On the intellectual level, these men were the religious leaders of the Jewish nation, but on the heart level, they were filled with pride and arrogance and didn't even begin to understand what God was doing right before their very eyes. Whited sepulchers, tombs whitewashed and made to look nice on the outside, but filled with dead men's bones and putrid corruption on the inside. Messiah had come. And his coming was clearly verified by his marvelous miracles attesting to his deity. But it was just such miracles that made them all the more furious with him. Because they made him more popular. And it was the resurrection of Lazarus, his friend, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was a defining moment for these religious hypocrites. And they said to each other, what are we doing? For this man's performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There it is. That's what they're living for. Their place as leaders and their nation as they perceived it to be. And it's expedient that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. So they wanted to kill Jesus. And they plotted to do that. You can see in John 12, 1 through 9, I won't go there for time's sake, just six days before the Passover, they were gathered at a dinner in Bethany. And the place was filled with many who were there just so they might get a glimpse of Lazarus who was raised from the dead. And that evening, the chief priest had a meeting and decided that they were going to put Lazarus to death also. In John 12.10, it says, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing Jesus. Can you imagine this? This is like as foolish as the soldiers that went to arrest Jesus, and they said, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am, and they all fell over. And then they get back up and arrest him. Okay? It's the same kind of delusion. We've got a heavy delusion happening in our country right now. Believe me, what is absolutely perverse and wicked is being celebrated in the rotunda of our capital in Minnesota and the capital of our nation, Washington, D.C. Can you see the irony of their plan? For crying out loud, can you see how evil their wicked hearts were completely deceiving them? These men were going to re-kill the one Jesus already raised from the dead. What makes them think that he wouldn't just raise him back up again? <laughs> well, they were deceived, weren't they? Note also that it was already in their heart and counsel to kill Jesus because in that verse, John says, they made plans to put Lazarus to death also. Also with who? With Jesus. Well, here's the conclusion to the sermon. Three groups of people, each very distinct, and what made them distinct was their attitude toward Jesus. He entered Jerusalem as King Jesus, but only a small remnant received him as such. 
Today is a good day to reflect back on the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ and consider our own hearts. Had we been there, into which group do we fit? Which group do we fit? And only you can do this with yourself. Nobody else can do it. Your wife can't do it for you. Your husband can't do it for you. You can't do it for your children. Your children can't do it for parents or brothers and sisters. You've got the devout followers who followed Christ regardless of the troubles that accompanied their course. Believe me, beloved, as a devout follower of Jesus Christ, you will be facing troubles in the years to come. Maybe in the months to come. Secondly, there are mere onlookers going along with the crowd. Today, they see Jesus as a historic figure, a moral teacher, a good moral teacher. There are a lot of God-fearers out there, and I thank God for them, and they're morally upright, and I thank God for that. They're appalled at what's taking place, but they're not regenerate. They don't have that personal relationship through Jesus Christ. They didn't allow him to control their lives and to change them forever. They didn't make that step. They just went along. And it's good for the kids. It's good for the family to go to church. We're good church-going people. But that relationship is still broken between them and their creator. And then you've got the hypocrites. Those who knew the word of God inside and out and missed the heart of the Messiah because they were unwilling to submit to his reign and rule. They desired to retain control and preserve their reputation at all points. And his claim on their lives was non-existent, even though they knew the most about him from the word of God. Now, it's not how often you go to church or how many Bible studies that you attend. It's a life that completely is yielded to him as King Jesus. If he says jump, you just say how high. You don't even think about it. That's the mark of a person that has a regenerate heart. That's the mark of a person that has submitted themselves to the lordship of Christ. They're not worried about their reputation. They're not worried about their career. They're not worried about their own life because all they want to do is serve Jesus. And that's what I wish for each one of you this Easter season. Come back Friday. It's going to be a marvelous, marvelous worship time. And then come back next Sunday for Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that you've made it all so plain for us. And Lord, we just pray that you'd work in our hearts, that we would be honest with ourselves. And Father, no matter how long we've been coming to church, if we don't have that burning, yearning desire to please you, God, help us to just judge ourselves, that we might make it right with you, that we might come right with you even today. And Lord, we give you all the honor and praise and glory in advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.